the morning and the moon in the evening and I'm uh, all right. Famous song. Famous person singing it. You probably just never associated one with the other until you tuned in to ReSound. You know, you're not going to get that from Jane Fonda. Welcome to ReSound, where we at the Third Coast International Audio Festival lasso radio stories from all over the world and corral them just for you in a one-hour show on Sundays. I'm Gwen Maxi. Tonight we have two stories. The first, Another Lousy Day, a story about a man who became obsessed with a total stranger after finding her diary 40 years after she wrote it. And Big in Japan, a young producer, thought he could have a great adventure moving to Japan to teach. Who knew the adventure would have him instead? Plus, we'll listen to Found Sound from a magazine called Found Magazine. So come, take a ride, take a seat, take a listen. A few years ago, writer David Kadesky found two diaries from the early 1960s in the back of a thrift store in Chicago. The diary's author, a single working woman who lived on the South Side, wrote meticulously about her everyday life, how she flirted with her co-workers, fought with her dad, and shopped for things she didn't need. Kadesky set out on a quest to track down the diary's author. The result was the critically acclaimed one-man play, Another Lousy Day. Then, Kadesky teamed up with Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister of Long Haul Productions to adapt the work into a radio story of the same name. Let's listen to Another Lousy Day. They didn't look like anything special. Red covers, yellowing pages, every page with a date at the top. What was unusual was that every single page had an entry. Every page was crammed with fluid handwriting in blue ballpoint every single page. It's rare to find a completed diary in a thrift store, and as I flipped through the pages, I noticed right away that there was something very special about these particular diaries. February 27th. We got a girl by us this morning, or I should say Virginia did, and boy did she ever smell from B.O. Verge told Bertha and she made her go to the nurse and get sprayed. March 25th, went to bed without watching TV and was eating nuts and reading when I cracked and broke my upper plate. Of all the damn luck. Then, to make matters worse, a big moth flew into my bedroom and I got hysterical and woke the whole house to get rid of it. Really went to bed late then. The diaries were filled with painstaking and sometimes beautiful detail of her everyday life. November 9th, another lousy day. I wore my blue suit with the pleated skirt and looked sharp. Mike looked, but ignored me again, and I'm getting so disgusted. I don't care anymore. Besides, my other admirer has been around. He came first thing in the morning, unfortunately, when Zoya and I were having an argument. But he talked to me for quite a while. This time we discussed houseplants, etc. He sure is nice, but I wish he was a little older. At last break, when I went into the cafeteria, he asked me to sit at his table, which was filled with fellows, and he held out and pushed in my chair. Ate like a pig when I got home. 
I savored each tantalizing bit of information, searching for clues as to who the writer was, what she did, where she lived, what she liked, what she didn't. I didn't know her name, but one thing was very clear. She had a lot of lousy days. October 13th. Boy, it was another lousy day. It rained and I broke my heel and came to work looking like a drowned rat. The war with Dad is still on, so I went right to bed. Didn't even watch TV. January 27th. Really got up late today and felt real lousy again. So I didn't do anything but lay around all day. October 13th. Oh, boy, felt not too bad during the day, but by evening I started feeling lousy again. Mr. Lesko died today. It was a bit like reading a mystery. Every bit of information led to something else. Every fact led to another question. Some were dead ends. But here's what I was able to deduce. Her name was probably Dolores. She was 30 years old in 1961. February 18th. Well, today is my birthday, and I'm 30. Ugh. She liked to go to the movies. Went to the show and saw Pillow Talk. Went to the show and saw Operation Petticoat, and it was very funny. Went to the show and saw The Gazebo. Lousy. Went to the show and saw Pillow Talk again. That cheered me up. Saw Can Can, which I thought stunk. Saw Five Branded Women and The Wild River, and we walked out. She liked shopping. After work, I went to Lashes, and then to Madigan's, and bought a knockout of a dress and a new winter coat. I bought a blender, which I didn't need, and some sachet and salami. She liked food. Got up around 10.30, ate breakfast, ate like a pig all day, and washed clothes. By evening, I went hog wild on biscuits and ice cream. And she cooked a lot. We were going to have Waldorf salad, rice potatoes, peas continental, and leg of lamb with mint sauce. Everything I made turned out crummy. The peas weren't too good, the potatoes were cold, and of course, the cake was lousy. She worked at the Zenith Television Factory. She was an assembler on the line, and she didn't really like her job very much. June 28th. God, today was just horrible. I not only felt awful, I worked awful, and by noon, I was in such a state of nerves, I could have exploded. I yelled at and snapped at everyone, and Natalie and I were at it all day long. I really was ready to quit. I went to the nurse and took a nerve pill, and things were a little better. She got to work on the very first color television sets, which Zenith introduced in 1961. She didn't like working on those any more than the black and white sets. June 26th. Went to our new jobs on colored TV, and are they ever awful? And I feel like I'm in Siberia. I asked Mike a couple of times about the controls, and later on he called me over and showed me a book about a Baptist. He was so cute. Went to bed late. Pillow talk, pillow talk. Another night of hearing myself talk, 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 talk. Some aspects of her life were just simply intriguing, such as who exactly was Mike? It was clear that Mike was one of her co-workers, and it seemed that he was in some supervisory position, perhaps the line foreman. Dolores developed a bit of a crush on him in the summer of 1960. June 6th. Work went better today. Didn't get a chance to talk to Mike right away, although he was near when Eddie was talking to me, and Mike just waited and looked glum. So I thought, uh-oh. Then I asked for screws, and he said Vince could get them, and Vince got the lousy ones. So later on, I told Mike, my mother warned me about men like you. All I do is talk to my pillow, talk, talk, talk. talk to my pillow, talk, 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 
Figuring everything out required some detective work. I started keeping notes, writing down lists of who might be who, and plotting out points on a map trying to figure out where she lived. Dad drove me to Western, and even though I left earlier, I still met that lousy Teresa. There were lots of street references. Took a bath and met Ruth at 6 o'clock on 22nd and Western. We went to the bowling alley to meet Joe, and they were already bowling. Then this blonde floozy... I eventually narrowed it down to a south-side Chicago neighborhood called McKinley Park. I knew that she lived with her father, but I didn't know what had happened to her mother. In the entire two years of writing, there was only one reference to her. My mother warned me about men like you. I knew that she had a particularly contentious relationship with the woman who was obviously her evil stepmother, Rose. January 22nd. Woke up feeling miserable and still mad about yesterday. Then Big Shot Rose started ordering around that I'd better get at the dishes or else in her bitchy tone, and Sir Lancelot had to get up and rush to her rescue, which resulted in a bang-up fight. I was so disgusted, if I felt better, I think I would have left home right then and there. And then I was told that I'm only a slave here, nothing else. They can both go to hell as far as I'm concerned, the big baboons. She didn't do anything all day but sit around watching TV, and for that she gets all the money she needs, and then don't dare say a word against Precious Rose. She worried about her weight and how her hairdo was doing, and one thing was certain, that even while at work in the factory, she was one snappy dresser. November 14th. Wore my new steel blue dress today and looked real sharp. May 8th, came home, had on my blue striped cotton dress and Mike sure was attentive today. December 21st, wore my black dress suit today and looked pretty sharp and so did my hair. John came over several times in the morning but didn't say much, although he pinched me a couple of times. When John gave me the stock, he was singing a song and I asked him if he had a cold. He said no, that it was his deep voice. The song was about being alone and lonely at night. Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? She didn't have a steady boyfriend, but there was this guy named J.B. who figured very prominently, particularly in the 1960 diary. J.B. had given her some kind of ring sometime in 1959. She had had it reset, and that really made people mad. In the car, Jenny asked me about the ring, and then read me the riot act. She got so shook up, she rode past the post office three times. Dolores showed up at a card party wearing the reset ring while J.B. was around. Around 10 o'clock, J.B. snuck in, but he didn't have much to say, and then watched TV in the living room. I didn't go out of my way to talk to him either. Then he came back and spotted the ring. After that, he was positively frigid, and I thought, good, it serves him right. I was very happy and hope it hurt him. We left at midnight, and he didn't say goodbye until I said it first. Tell me, dear, are you lonesome tonight? One of the greatest mysteries, at least to me, was... Who was J.B., and what did he mean to her? The answer had to be out there. I figured it had to be in an earlier diary. 
every bit of information about JB, about the ring, about why she got it reset, about why hearing about it upset Jenny so much that she drove past the post office three times. It all had to be in that elusive diary. So the next weekend, I scoured the same antique store looking for more diaries. I didn't find any, but I did find a scrapbook titled with meticulous silver stick-on letters. Las Vegas, October 17th to 22nd, 1971. The scrapbook was filled with programs for shows including such 1970s Vegas headliners as Don Rickles, Robert Goulet, and one amazing double bill, Buddy Hackett and Charo. Gucci, Gucci! And in the back of the scrapbook? Postcards sent from Dolores to Rose to the house they shared on the south side of Chicago. It was her. I now had her last name and her home address. I found eight of Dolores' scrapbooks in two different antique stores. Inside were even more clues, or really, more mysteries. Things like a 1988 canceled check from Zenith for $86,000, which seemed to be for her pension. Pictures of enormous dream houses and realtors' business cards. I wondered, did she just cash out and move out to the suburbs and leave her diaries behind? And there were still those other questions. Who was J.B.? Did Dolores ever marry? What happened to her mother? Was Rose really Dolores' evil stepmother? Was Dolores still alive? It was possible, after all. She would only have been in her early 70s. After nearly a year of sleuthing, I finally paid a visit to Chicago City Hall to see if there was a death certificate on file for Dolores. I learned that she died on December 21, 1992, of congestive heart failure and chronic obstructive lung disease. She was 60 years old. She was buried at St. Mary's Cemetery in Evergreen Park, Illinois, on Christmas Eve, 1992. That weekend, I drove out to the cemetery and I discovered that Rose was not the evil stepmother after all. She and Dolores are buried side by side with matching beloved sister headstones. July 12th. Got up around 1 o'clock and it was raining and real dreary. Around 1.30 at night the fire engine started going by. Then at 2.15 Dad called and he thought the harvesters was on fire. He said there was a terrific fire somewhere. Rose went up in the attic, and sure enough, there was a big fire to the north of us, and it had the whole little room lit up. We turned on the radio, and ten of Harvester's buildings on 26th Street were burning down. We got dressed, and we went on the bridge at 3 a.m. to watch. We saw Uncle Joe coming home from work. Using information from Dolores' death certificate, I was able to contact her good friend Seal, who she had visited in Louisville, Kentucky, on New Year's Eve, 1960. December 31st. Well, I'm starting out the New Year right, having fun in Louisville, Kentucky. After our party, which lasted until 3.30 this morning, it sure was hard getting up. Late one afternoon, I found myself driving to McKinley Park, Dolores' old Chicago neighborhood, to visit Seal. 
Seal was in town visiting her sister Betty, who lived right across the street from Dolores's old house. They invited me in, offered me coffee and cookies, and wanted to tell me everything about Dolores and her family and what life was like in the neighborhood before things like the highway came and changed it all. I learned that Dolores's mother Mary died of leukemia when Dolores was eight, and that Dolores dropped out of school after eighth grade and got a job at the neighborhood dime store. I learned that neither Dolores nor Rose ever married. They lived in that same south side house until the day they died. And then Seal pulled out a photo album from their 1963 trip to New York City. She opened it up, began paging through, and pointed at Dolores. And there she finally was, smiling up at me, wearing a knee-length, sleeveless, pink summer dress. She is squinting into the sunlight. She's smiling, beaming, really. She looks like she's definitely not having a lousy day. And I almost felt a little bit sad because I knew I was at the end. The puzzle had been solved. This photograph, a final piece. But there was that nagging question. I then asked Seal, who was JB? And she said, J.B., J.B., um, that doesn't sound familiar. She knew a lot of people who we didn't really know, lots of people from Zenith who we never even met. I said, he gave her a ring. She had it reset. It upset a lot of people. In the car, Jenny asked me about the ring and then read me the riot act. She got so shook up, she rode past the post office three times. She said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that was Jimmy. And she pointed to another photograph. Dolores, standing with two young men, the three of them snappily dressed and smiling. Seal pointed to the man with the mustache, and she said, That's Jimmy. And that other guy with him? I think that they were together. I don't think he was interested in her so much. I think that those two men were together. I told Seal that I had shown the diaries to a lot of friends and that the usual response was, Oh my God, she sounds so depressed. Oh God, she sounds so bipolar. What a little Prozac would have done for her. And Seal actually thought that that was pretty funny because she said that Dolores really was a lot of fun to be with. She loved throwing parties. She loved decorating the house for the holidays. She loved being around people. And she was definitely full of life. January 2nd. Got up late and barely made it for church. After, I packed my bags and got ready to leave. Got home at 7 o'clock. In a way, I hated to leave, but in a way, I was glad to get home, too. Home is the same, unfortunately, and Dad sure can get on my nerves. I don't know. When I'm home, I don't feel like talking, but when I'm away, I'm a completely different person. Another Lousy Day 
written by David Kadesky and produced by Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister of Long Haul Productions. The story first aired on Chicago Public Radio in 2003. Coming up, making it big in Japan, or trying to. But first, music from Found Magazine. You know how every once in a while you come across a piece of paper on the sidewalk or a note card buried in the pages of a book you got at a garage sale, and it turns out to be someone's to-do list, notes to self, or a letter to their boyfriend? And you can't help but wonder, who is this person? What is their life like? Found Magazine gathers things like that and shares them with the world. Now they've taken Found Sound and put it on a 7-inch record. Musician Claudine Coulet was walking down the street in Stockwell, London, when she happened upon a broken answering machine laying in the road. She recovered the tape and carried it to Spain, where she put this song together in her small home studio. From Found Magazine's brand-new 7-inch, I used to call them 45s, Claudine Coulet's My Darling. My darling. See you later, darling. I hope you're nice and warm. My darling. It's just me. I hope you're nice and warm. See you later, darling. Bye, darling. So cold, so cold, warm, warm. Get home and keep warm. See you later, darling. See you later, darling. I hope you're nice and warm. Okay, darling. <laughs> My darling. Hope you lot. My darling. Talk to you later. Bye. My Darling, by Claudine Coulet from Found Magazine's new 7-inch release. If you want to check out more about Found Magazine or contribute a find, go to their website at foundmagazine.com.
Producer Robin Hilton was restless. He didn't know what to do with his life. And then he saw an ad in the paper seeking English teachers in Japan. Big box, little responsibility, what could be bad? He signed up, he went, and here's the story, or maybe I should say saga, of his trip. Let's listen to Big in Japan by producer Robin Hilton. Dear Robin teacher, you took care of the various it. Cheerfully, it could the study of English. Manner, feeling that a little America became near us. Even if it is return in America, I take care of yourself. Attach it to the body, the feeling and gratefully. That's a letter I got from one of my students in Japan, where I used to teach English. What it fails to say grammatically, it makes up for in its sentiment. And I think I understand. But let me start at the beginning. It all started in the fall of 1995. I was flat broke and needed to make some money fast. One day, I saw an ad in the newspaper. It seemed like the answer to everything. The Japanese government was hiring Americans to help teach English in the public schools there. The pay was good and no experience necessary, so I sent off for an application. They wanted a photo, a personal biography, a medical report with a blood sample, a detailed list of all my family members, and an essay on why I want to work in Japan. I said, I like Japan. I want to live there. A few weeks later, I got an interview. Mr. Hilton, do you have any teaching experience? No. Can you speak Japanese? No. Do you have any qualifications at all for this job? No, not really. I was hired immediately. The following summer, they put me and all the other successful applicants on a plane and flew us business class to Japan. All expenses paid. It was amazing. Just a few months earlier, I was living on a diet of cheese sandwiches and Kool Aid. On the plane, I had a bottle of Chianti with a T bone steak. At the Tokyo airport, there were hundreds of other Americans just like me. All of us part of Japan's master plan to flood the country's schools with assistant English teachers, or AETs. In college, most of us had studied literature or political science. Some had majored in art history. But few of us could find a decent job back home. We were a hodgepodge of misfits with the best intentions. One of the first Americans I met was Kevin from Virginia. I've always been interested in Japan. I'd lived in Okinawa when I was four, but I don't really have much recollection of that. But、uh, I was interested in Japanese cultures and Buddhism in particular, different things. I think it's one of the best choices I've ever made to come here. Like me, Kevin was full of hope and excited about the future. Our heads were spinning with possibilities. <laughs> Somebody from the Board of Education picked me up from the airport that day and dropped me off at my new apartment, a squat, concrete building grown black and gray with pollution. I'd heard that living quarters in Japan were tight, and I was surprised to get a place to myself. But this 
was a dump. It was surrounded by billowing factories, and the air smelled like raw sewage. I thought I'd see ancient temples, Buddhist monks and women wearing kimonos. What I found looked like Detroit on a bad day. The next morning, I was to report to the Board of Education office for my first day of work. When I arrived, I found a couple dozen workers, mostly men, standing in the hallway, waving their arms around and touching their toes. This was the government-prescribed morning exercise routine, designed to keep employees from having heart attacks at their desks. They performed the routine with all the enthusiasm of someone about to get dental work. Most looked half asleep. Some smoked cigarettes. The music itself was piped through the entire building, even in the bathrooms. After the routine, they settled into work, sitting side by side in row after row of old metal desks. Most of the workers looked worn and tired. Some borderline catatonic. They pored over huge stacks of paperwork and hammered their computer keyboards like machines. I looked out over the office, but no one seemed to notice I was there. Then I saw one of the workers was smiling at me. I smiled back, and he stepped forward to introduce himself. Mr. Nakagawa was my new boss. I liked him immediately. He told me to relax. He showed me my desk, and someone brought me a cup of green tea. Mr. Nakagawa bowed with a smile and went back to work. I sat, shuffled a few papers, and looked around the office curiously. I was waiting for someone to give me my new assignment, maybe a map to a school or perhaps a detailed teaching plan. But several hours passed. And I was completely ignored. You've probably heard the expression that 90% of success is just showing up. I quickly learned that was never more true than in Japan. As long as I came to work on time and sat quietly at my desk, everyone was happy. I could read a book all day, listen to music, or even lay my head on the desk and take a nap. Co-workers repeatedly gave me candy, brought me tea, and told me to please enjoy the relax. One time, I tried to empty the trash, but several other employees quickly surrounded me, took the garbage can, and told me I shouldn't work so hard. Days passed, then weeks. I thought I'd be in a classroom. I thought I'd be making a difference in students' lives, exploring our different cultures and teaching English along the way. Instead, I was stuck in an office filled with government bureaucrats. More than a month and a half had passed, and I'd never even been to a school or seen a student. I was bored out of my mind and began to fear I'd made a terrible mistake. I was thinking about moving back to America when Mr. Nakagawa told me he had some news. 
He said I was finally going to teach English at a real Japanese junior high school. He handed me a sheet of paper with a few sentences scribbled in English. It was my instructions. I was to greet the students, give my name with a brief self introduction, and sing a song. My name is Robin Hilton. Robin Hilton. And I am an American. American. I am from the United States. Okay, so. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Oh, I'm fine too. Thank you. It's a beautiful day. Do you want to sing a song? Yes, I do. Okay. Try to picture me in front of these students as I danced around like an idiot, mouthing the words to this song. I'd like to say it was more complicated than this, but it wasn't. The school didn't really want me to teach English. They already had a perfectly fine Japanese person for that. It appeared I was purely cosmetic. I was something for the students to stare at so they could see what a real American looked like. I felt like a specimen, a novelty. A sideshow entertainer. Hello, good morning. The students were starstruck. I could cause a riot just by showing up. After each class, they'd swarm around me like a crazed mob at a Backstreet Boys concert. They'd ask for my autograph, grab at my clothes, or touch the hair on my arms. This was to be my reality for the next three years. The Board of Education kept sending me to new schools, and each place I visited was the same. It's hard to believe I could elicit this kind of response just because I was white or different. But Japan is still a very homogenized society, and many are infatuated with Americans. Everywhere I went, people would stare or try to talk with me. Women were flirtatious. In school, I was the first white person many of my students had ever seen. And I have to admit, I loved every minute of it. My ego swelled to mythical proportions. And after a few months, my bank account swelled too. The rumors about making money in Japan are true. One teacher I met had saved more than $100,000. Some friends of mine saved more than $60,000. I suddenly found myself making more money than I'd ever seen before. I was riding a wave of both fame and fortune. Life was good. The longer I was in Japan, the stranger I felt about my circumstances. It seemed odd and almost shameful I could make so much money for doing so little. Some of the teachers I knew told me they considered the money fair compensation for the pain and suffering of living in a foreign culture. Admittedly, I went to Japan for the money, but I did think I'd actually be doing something to earn it. And after several months, 
My students hadn't learned a thing. Dear Robin teacher, thank you for being for the short time very much. The class of English cannot chatter readily and didn't finish because I didn't like to chatter. Have been to be a little while only, but be careful healthily, even if it returns to America, and send husband and wife relation well pleasant life. Once a week, on Friday mornings, I went to a coffee shop near my office. I never taught classes on Fridays, so I'd meet my friend Tracy to have breakfast and talk about our week. Tracy was from Scotland and also an English teacher in Japan. Like me, she was given thousands of dollars and treated like a celebrity. But she didn't seem to mind. I quite enjoy the lack of responsibility, the lack of preparation, the fact that I, in fact, I don't even think about it. I've reached such a sublime, surreal level in the classroom that I don't have to think whatsoever. My brain is a pretty blank. But I don't mind that because it's giving me the opportunity to pursue things that I'm genuinely interested in. I came here um, with huge list of books that I wanted to read because I'd never had the time before. And so I'm slowly working my way through all these books that I really wanted to read. I arrive sometimes after 10 o'clock. Sometimes I'm only in school for two hours and they say, well, you can go home now. Your work is done for today. Thank you very much for your Tracy said we were lucky. She told me to relax and enjoy the free ride while it lasted. Back at the office, I spoke with my supervisor, Mr. Nakagawa. What do you think about me as a, an English teacher in Japan? Uh, perfect. Because very kind and very, yeah, you speak English very clearly for students and very slowly. Yeah. I think every student is very happy to see you. So, so do you think that I'm, am I lazy? You're not lazy. I think you're perfect. Yeah, you worked very hard, I think. I should say there were teachers in Japan who really did work hard. Americans who took their jobs seriously and tried to make a difference. One of the most respected teachers in my area was Michael from California. He was famous for his intense dedication and scrupulous work ethic. I think probably one of the most offensive things I heard, it was my first year, and it was in, in my group, a, a woman. Uh, we'd been teaching in Japan for about two months, and we were at an AT meeting, and she was sitting back and she said, you know, this is the easiest job I've ever had. She said, all I have to do is show up. And, you know, I overheard it. I mean, I didn't confront her, and, you know, it wasn't any of my business, but I thought, you know, what are you doing? What are you, you know, you're paid probably more money than you've ever seen before, and it's the easiest job you ever had. And I found it, like, the most challenging job I ever had, you know, and the most interesting by far. But um, I hold teachers to a, to a very high moral, you know, principle, and I, and I think that there's, there's a, a degree of morality to it. And, I mean, if you don't reflect on that and you don't have any moral sense or moral responsibility, uh, then, then I think, yeah, you're taking advantage. You're taking advantage of the Japanese people, uh, but, but more so, you're taking advantage of the students. 
Hi, it's me. One of my closest Japanese friends was Chieko Kamei. She was an English teacher and unusually honest and direct by Japan standards. Most Japanese are polite and almost always maintain a veneer of respect and civility. This is the tatemai, the way things seem. But beneath the surface is what they call hone, or their true intentions. Talking with Michael had made me paranoid. I began to suspect my students and co workers actually thought I was lazy and stupid, despite all their bowing and smiling. I asked Chiyoko what she thought. I had some oral communication class with AT, and I don't know how,、uh, how he came to Japan to get a job, but、uh, he didn't want to work. He was lazy, and sometimes he late for school, he late for the class. And maybe after 30 minutes or so, he appeared. And he smells alcohol. He smelled like he, he had been drinking? Yes. And after the class, I asked him, What time did you go to bed? You smell like alcohol. We smile because I didn't want to have a quarrel. And he said, Oh, I didn't sleep. Just, I was drinking all night. Unbelievable, just unbelievable. Chiyoko said her school never tried to fire the teacher because they didn't want to disturb the wa, or group harmony. She said that was the reason many schools continue to pay assistant English teachers who do little or nothing to earn it. In many ways, all of this is possible not only because of Japan's complicated social protocol, but also because of its rigid educational system. Students have one purpose to pass a series of notoriously difficult university entrance exams. The English part of the exams only covers reading and grammar, so schools spend very little time teaching students how to actually speak English. It's a system that leaves many Americans feeling useless and frustrated. In time, even those with the best intentions grow weary and bitter. I mean, when I first came, I was definitely. I mean, I, I saw myself as an educator. That's my friend Kevin. Now I'm, I see the, the dead end that teaching English in Japan really is. I think a lot of the people who come to Japan thinking that they're going to make a big difference or that they're actually here for a real reason become very disillusioned with their job when they realize that that's not why they're here. They're here as a freak. It's just, it's very prestigious for a lot of the local boards to be able to say they have a native English speaker here. After a couple of years, I too became increasingly disenchanted with my job. I had visited nearly every school in my area. Students were no longer satisfied with my self introduction or with singing songs, so teachers started using me as a human tape recorder. Please repeat after me. Have you ever been to Disneyland? Have you ever been to Disneyland? I consulted a handbook the Board of Education gave me when I first arrived. 
There was a section on mental health, and it told me I was suffering from culture shock. It was a relief. I had thought I was losing my mind. Every now and then I'd hear stories about AETs who committed suicide or others who were alcoholics. I was afraid I was next. Kevin tried to reassure me my feelings were normal. I think it can go either way if you're here for a long time. You either really know what you're doing here and really know what you want out of this being in this culture, or you really kind of lose your mind here. I've seen some people here who are very socially retarded, both from a standpoint from my culture and from the Japanese culture, in a kind of a limbo. They don't know where they belong. They don't know what they're doing. You can be completely insane as a foreigner in this country and still get along. And a lot of people are completely insane in this country. I started sleepwalking through my classes. On some days, I didn't even bother to show up. As an experiment, Kevin once skipped an entire month of work. And nobody said a word. My idea of what the morality in the situation is has changed. I mean, you only live once. And I personally have better things than sit at an office for no reason at all. And if nobody else cares, if I'm not going to serve any other purpose, then um, I have no shame at all in leaving. It's interesting to consider how any of this could happen in a country famous for its industriousness. The typical Japanese employee has an almost rabid work ethic. In my office, I saw Mr. Nakagawa work at his desk for up to 70 or 80 hours a week. I began to feel sorry for him. It seemed like such a senseless and misguided way to spend his life. I suppose it's arrogant of an American to pass judgment and assume his way of living is better than anybody else's. But I liked Mr. Nakagawa and believed I could help. So each week I tried to get Mr. Nakagawa to leave the office with me, to go to coffee shops or restaurants for extended breaks. I encouraged him to relax and take his job less seriously, to see there were more important things in life. From time to time we'd both skip work and hang out at his place. Okay. Oh, is this the same? Yeah. Okay, you start anytime. Before he worked for the Board of Education, Mr. Nakagawa was a concert violinist. He studied the violin as a university student and planned to make music his life. But music didn't pay the bills, and eventually he was forced to give it up. Before this day, when he played with me, he hadn't touched the violin in more than 14 years. After playing, we ordered a pizza. We sat together, we ate, and talked about the two different worlds we come from. Though I stayed in Japan for three years, I was always an outsider, always a gaijin. And to Mr. Nakagawa, it seemed I was lucky. 
I was a visitor and ultimately free to leave Japan at any time. But this was his life, and he'd continue to live it long after I was gone and back in America. I have so, too much job, so I must stay late at night in the office, and I must work uh, even on Saturday and Sunday. And I don't feel human life. My life is not human life. So when I feel really relaxed, I said, this is human life, right? Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I think many Japanese cannot feel this is human life. Yeah, see, I think, see, I think Japanese people work too hard. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to. Mm -hmm. You really don't have mm -hmm. to. Right. Because I think you stay so late mm -hmm. that there's really no reason to stay late. You right, right. Why? I don't know why. It's custom. Yeah. Thanks to you, I feel human life. Mr. Nakagawa liked to say I taught him how to be happy. But I think I learned even more from him. Despite the vast cultural differences that separated us, he helped me to see the similarities. We shared the same dreams, the same fears, the same needs, all of us searching for something better in this mysterious human experience. The world seems a lot smaller now, and I can see how strange and beautiful it is to be anything at all. Dear Robin Teacher, I think I had a good time in your class. For the first time I met you, I was very surprised because you're the two-spirited and funny teacher. Now I like English more. I want to meet you every week. You gave me a lot of treasure. Thank you. This was my last day in Japan. I stood by my office desk and bowed to everyone. When I stood up, I looked out at their faces. They were all smiling. I smiled back. And despite everything, I knew I was going to miss them. I gathered my bags, and Mr. Nakagawa walked me to the elevator. Any parting words of wisdom for me? Be my best friend forever, okay? Okay. okay. That's my elevator. Okay, is there anything else you want to say? Well, I love you, loving. I, I love you too. Okay. I promised Mr. Nakagawa I'd come back to Japan someday. He promised to visit me in the U.S. In reality, we knew it'd be hard to stay in touch with more than 9,000 miles between us. Our friendship would likely be reduced to the occasional phone call or Christmas card. But we both hoped we'd meet again one day.
After leaving Japan, I spent a couple of months traveling through Asia and Western Europe. It was a last-ditch effort to put off facing the inevitable reality back home. I'd come full circle. I had no job, no apartment, no car, and only a vague idea of what I wanted to do with my life. Like many Americans who taught in Japan, I was in reverse culture shock. In Japan, I'd been a virtual celebrity, but back home, I was virtually nothing. It's hard to find anyone in the U.S. who will pay 50 bucks an hour just to talk with me. It'd be easy to end this story saying how good it is to be home, but it's been hard. I spent so much time in Japan feeling like an outsider, like I didn't belong. Now there are days I feel like a stranger in my own country, and I often wish I was back in Japan, where life was like a strange and hazy dream. That was Big in Japan, produced by Robin Hilton for Soundprint in 2000. Now's the time in the show we like to play a little music. Not a little music, actually, a nice big chunk of music so that you can actually hear it, listen to it, and actually maybe even get something out of it. This is Mice Parade from their album Obrigado Sodad. Well, about 10 years ago, one of those 
Come Out Every Month with Data to Make You Crazy studies was released about how when you diet and lose weight, your metabolism slows down and basically fights your every dieting move. I was working at NPR at the time, and they wanted to talk to an expert about it. So we called the reigning guru at the time, and this is what he said. I think that everybody has to fight their fatness in a very different way. And I think it's always been tough. I've been battling this since I was seven years old, and I'm 47 now. So it's been 40 years of carrot sticks and cottage cheese with pineapple and, and you know, uh, stuffed tomatoes with tuna. I couldn't look at tuna, like, for three years. Can you guess who that was? Okay, here's more hints. Satiny gym shorts, tank tops, a mop of curls, and an insane energy level. Yes, none other than Richard Simmons. We know he loves to exercise, but who knew he loves to sing? Sun in the morning and the moon in the evening and I'm uh, alright. That's it for today's show. Could you stand any more? What do I find? A healthy balance on the credit side. Got no diamond, got no pearl. Still I think I'm a lucky girl. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. Got no mansion, got no yacht. Still I'm happy with what I got. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. Sunshine gives me a lovely day. Moonlight gives me the Milky Way. Got no checkbooks, got no banks. Still, I'd like to express my thanks. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. And with the sun in the morning and the moon in the evening, I'm all right. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by Katie Dunn and myself, Gwen Maxi, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering help. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for Resound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago, Triage Music, and Found Magazine. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. Resound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Made no will, but when I cash in, I leave the sun.